0: It has been said that tragedy is like a storm. It's not a question of if the tragedy will come, but when. James Boy says, it does not matter who you are, sooner or later you're going to experience sorrows or even tragedies in your life. You may be rich or poor, a man or a woman, black or white, tragedy inevitably will become a part of your personal experience and there will be nothing you can do to avoid it. The reality of it is, church, all of us have faced tragedy and we will face more tragedy in the future. It may come in sickness or disease or maybe a loss of a job. Maybe we'll experience some sort of natural disaster or the passing of loved ones. I know... Many of you have walked down that dark and lonely road of losing a spouse. I can't imagine the pain and the sorrow. The person you live life with. The person who loves you like no other. The person who knows you like no other is now gone. C.S. Lewis wrote the famous book, A Grief Observed, where sadness, suffering, and pain pours out of his heart as he grieves over the passing of his beloved wife, Madeline. Tragedy is painful, crisis causes us to suffer regardless of who you are. But not only do we face tragedy, but life continues to move forward. It's like we're on a waterslide that we can't get off of. We feel the pressure to move on, to get on with life. But often our hearts are still recovering over the last tragedy crisis we were just in. I'm not trying to cause us to have severe depression this morning. But at the same time, I don't want us to be naive or avoidant of what happens. None of us are immune to tragedy. The only thing To me, that seems worse than possibly losing a spouse would be to lose a child. And this is where our text is this morning. Where Christ meets us in our darkest hours, our darkest moments, when we feel helpless and hopeless. and, And Christ comes in and gives us hope once again. So let's turn to our Bibles, John 4 verses 46 through 54. John 4, verses 46 through 54. As we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, may we really glorify you with our lives as we think about such subjects as crisis, tragedy. Father, help us to have a real relationship with you. Help Christ to be our foundation so we'll be able to walk victoriously through the trials that we face. Help Christ to really be all that we have instead of often what we do, our hearts grasp for anything else but Christ. We fill our lives up with everything but Christ. Father, help us to be people that truly are walking with you and really living out the songs that we sing every Sunday here, including myself. Help us to repent where we continue to fail, to sin miserably in various areas in our lives, Father. Help us to be people who live out the power of the gospel, who walk in your grace and mercy, and who pour love out on others because we recognize the love that we have in you. Be with us now, Father. Help us to to be challenged, convicted, encouraged by your word. In Christ's name, amen. So John 4, 46 through 54 says this, so we came again to Cana, that's Jesus, to Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard Jesus had come from Judea, to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. What an amazing story. What an encouraging story for us as this man walked through such a trial. But before we dive into the text, I want us to start a little differently this morning. I want us to approach this text like many of us approach a new book. Some of us start books by perusing through the introduction and then we skip to the conclusion and skim the conclusion to just get an idea of what this book's all about. Well, in our passages this morning, I want us to take that same approach. I want us to read the first passage, and then I want to jump down to the last passage. So the first passage is John Four, verse 46, and it says this, So he, that is Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water, wine. Now let's stop there, and now I want to jump down to verse 54, which says, This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came, when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So Jesus comes back to the same place where he did his first sign, turning water into wine, and now we see that he in his second sign, he heals the official son at the same place. The question is, why does Jesus perform two signs in the same area? Well, we could give numerous reasons for this that we could mention, but I think a main reason would be to set the signs next to one another, compare and contrast them, look at them in relationship to one another. For example... Both stories start with a rebuke. The first story, Jesus rebukes his mother, Mary. And then in our second story, Jesus rebukes the official. But also we see both miracles are performed from a distance. Jesus does nothing but speak. In the wedding story, turning water into wine, Jesus tells the servants to pour water in specific ceremonial jars, and it turns into wine. And the story today, Jesus tells the official his son is healed. And Jesus says this from being 30 miles away from where his son actually is at. Thirdly, in both stories, servants possess unique knowledge. The water to wine story, the servants poured water into jars. They knew the miracle as the water had turned into wine. And In this story, the servants met the official and told them the exact time his son was healed, which let the official knew that was the exact time Jesus told them his son would be healed. Fourth, both accounts, both signs, conclude that people believed. In the wedding story, Turning Water to Wine, it says that Jesus' disciples put their faith in him. They trusted him. And then in our story today, the official believed, put his trust in Christ, but also his household as well. But I don't think any of those are the most significant, most important reason. It's not found in the similarities, but in their difference. The first sign was done during a celebration where there was joy. It was a time of happiness as they celebrated the union between two becoming one in marriage. And then the second sign, the other hand, was done in a place where there was sickness, grief, sadness, burden, desperation, a somber spirit. The official son was very sick on the brink of death. The first sign is a picture of joy and happiness. The second sign is a picture of pain and sorrow, which leads us to point number one. Christ meets us in whatever circumstances we face. Christ meets us in whatever circumstances we face. Amen? Jesus was in the middle of both the wedding celebration and the sadness over sickness. He was at the center of both situations. Jesus was there when the two vowed to be committed to each other for life and marriage, and then Jesus was also there when the man was desperate for help, when his son was on the brink of death. What are you facing this morning? Are you going through times of blessings Times of joy? Or are you going through times of suffering? Are you facing times of crisis right now? Because Christ is there with us. Jesus is there when we are celebrating, when life is running smoothly. But he is also there when we are grieving, suffering over the worst of circumstances. Jesus is both Lord and Savior over those who have placed their trust in him, but he is not only Lord and Savior over us, but he is Lord and Savior over every circumstance that we go through. He's not only there with us, but he is active. He is working in the middle of our circumstances. We can rest assured that we aren't facing life alone. Christ is with us. He is at the center of all of our circumstances. Amen? Well, let's go back to our passages. And we're in John 4, verse 47. And it says this, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. We aren't exactly sure how the official knew about Jesus. Maybe he heard about him from the first miracle when Jesus turned the water and the wine at the wedding. The text does not tell us, but we do know that this man had some sort of faith. We know at the beginning it's not saving faith, but it is a belief that Christ is a miracle worker, that Christ is an actual healer. That's why the man believed Jesus could heal his son. It's sort of like someone who comes for biblical counseling because they are desperate to have their marriage be right, to get help. And they are motivated to do whatever it takes to help their marriage. They will follow Christ. They will read every scripture you give them. They will memorize half of the Old Testament. They will fast for a month, do whatever it takes to save their marriage. The question I ask, though, is what is behind all that type of motivation? What is usually behind that? Many people come to Christ in desperation, not to follow him per se, but to use him to fix their problems. What is Jesus' response to the official who has this attitude? Jesus rebukes the official by saying in verse 48 Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus is talking to the official but he is also talking to humanity in general. We often follow Christ because of what he can do for us, what good we can get out of him. Lord, please fix my marriage. Lord, please heal my son. Lord, please let me get that job. And all of a sudden, we have all the motivation to obey Christ. We become super Christians, but the truth be known, our faith is often mixed with a lot of self. When we do that, we're often motivated to get Christ to help us in the moment without submitting to Him in the long run. Well, this leads to point number two. Crisis reveals the depth of our faith in Christ Jesus. Crisis reveals the depth of our faith in Christ Jesus. Tragedy allows us to see what our faith is really made of. The depth of it. Trials test our faith. Five years ago, the depth of my faith, or the lack of depth of my faith, was revealed when our oldest son, Luke, gave us a medical scare in infancy. He was the cutest little bundle of joy, as my wife would always say. And we were so thankful to God for having our firstborn son, My wife and I were, like any new parents, excited about the future of his life, what it holds for him. He was full of personality, full of life from a young age. But at almost two months old, he had some projectile vomiting and high fevers. So we took him to the pediatrician, and she sent us instantly to the ER. At the ER, the radiologist told us, he could see fluid on his brain, and Luke needed to be life-flighted to Miami Children's Hospital because he could have brain damage, and this could lead to death. We were shocked. I mean, we were just going to have things checked out, and the next thing we knew, our baby boy was sent in a helicopter to see a neurosurgeon. They thought, from the scanning, that it looked like he had hydrocephalus. The trip there was all a blur as they hooked up Luke to a coffin-like bed to fly him to the children's hospital in Miami. I was stunned. I was numb as I thought the possibility of losing our firstborn son. I remember clearly I wasn't walking in faith because I was controlled. I was consumed by fear, worry. And anxiety. And I know that is natural to some extent. We will struggle with fear and worry in such situations. But the midst of fear and worry, in the midst of it all, we should slowly turn our gaze to Christ once again, even through all the pain and heartache we're going through, where we can actually be suffering, but have hope and peace at the same time through that trial. The trial with my son revealed that I had weak faith in a lot of areas. But church, that's the grace of God where he lets us see what is wrong with us, where we need to change, instead of, oh no, Lord, no, 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 I have enough faith. No, that's the grace of God when I could see that. God gave me eyes to see the shallowness of my own faith at that point. Trials reveals the depth of our faith. We see our hearts for what they are. We recognize the level of trust we have in Christ Jesus. What about us this morning? Have we realized that God is using circumstances to test us, to show us where we need to grow? Let's continue on in John 4, 49. And it says this, The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So we see here, the official hears Christ's rebuke in verse 48, which we read earlier, and takes no offense to the rebuke and asks again for Jesus if he would come down to his house to heal his son. Jesus tells the official that his son will live and the man believed Jesus' words. This is significant because He just asked Jesus twice to go to his house to heal his son, right? The man probably assumed, like many of us, that Jesus needed to see his son, to touch his son, to pray over his son, to heal him. And just to make sure he gets healed too, right? But instead, Jesus says, Go, your son will live. And the man believes Jesus. The official submits to what Christ says and takes Jesus at his word. He puts his own son's life on the line and believes the words of Jesus Christ. There isn't any hesitation. Scripture says that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Instead of seeing is believing, this man believes without seeing, amen? The official is trusting in Christ. He's showing real faith in Christ, which leads to point number three. Christ uses crisis to grow us in faith. Point number three says that Christ uses crisis to grow us in faith. The man is growing. The man is maturing. I mean, he went from wanting things done his own way to being rebuked and submitting to Christ with his beloved son. I wonder if we are like that. Do we take Christ at His word? Do we trust what the Scriptures say? Are we willing to obey God's word when we are in crisis? When we're in trials, we will pour our hearts out to God. That's a given. But at the end of the day, we recognize that God is God and we are not. We trust him to operate in whatever way he sees fit. And we glorify God anyway. Amen? That's what we're called to. James 1, 2 through 4 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect... That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why should we count trials, tragedies of many kinds with all joy? Because they grow us. They mature us in our faith in Christ. Crisis refines us. Crisis and tragedy purifies our faith. There's purpose in our trials. There's hope in our tragedies in Christ trials train us in Christ they discipline us in Christ trials humble us in Christ they wake us up away from our slumber in Christ they deepen our love in Christ they bring us further patience in Christ we learn to walk in the shoes of others In Christ, through trials, we learn to depend on him all the more, hold on to him, strive for, live for Christ. That's what trials do for us. Trials remind us that this world is not our home. Do we see how Christ uses trials to change us, to make us more like Christ? I must admit that when we were going through the trial with Luke, our son, I had a hard time praising God in that moment. But God, thank goodness, did change me through the trial. I learned that my joy, my hope, was not having right circumstances or having things go my way, but depending on him through the circumstances, whatever he decided. God is working on all of us. You and me are all a work in progress. None of us have arrived in our faith. God will continue to use circumstances to transform us into the image of God, amen? That's what sanctification's all about. Well, let's continue on, and we're now in John four fifty one, 51. It says this, see, the official went from a belief that Jesus was a miracle worker to a belief that Christ was his Lord and Savior. What was the result? What was the result of such a belief, such an active faith? It says this whole household believed in Christ. Sort of like the woman at the well. The whole town heard about Christ. They all became followers of Christ, it says the household here in our passage. And I think by a follower, we're talking about one who truly lives for Christ. One who reads the word of God. One who spends time communing with God in prayer. One who is in awe of the gospel. One who is in awe and amazed that Christ would save sinners like us. A real faith that holds on to God's grace in the midst of the trials, relishing in his favor. I wonder how many of us have active faith. True faith like that. Many today get good vibes from Christ. They think he was a good guy. They consider that Jesus was a good teacher, a good prophet, per se. Some of these folks even believe that he is truly a Lord and Savior. Maybe because they were their upbringing, maybe they're raised with Christian parents, or maybe they went to a private religious Christian school but in reality they still haven't submitted their life to Christ. They know facts about Christ, but they still are holding on to self instead of following Christ. I know, we all know that self wants to stay on the throne. Self wants to rule without anyone, including God, telling him or her what to do. But scripture teaches us that we have to die to self, repent, turn to Christ, get off the throne and relinquish all authority to Christ Jesus. That's what we're called to do. If God is drawing you this morning, turn to him in faith and repentance. Read the Bible for yourself. Study it. Spend time in it. Start with the Gospel of John. Get to know Christ for yourself, not what people have told you about them. Get to know them yourself. Let the word of God reach your heart. Well, I'd like to ask one final question this morning. Was there something in the official that drew Christ to him? Was there something in him that drew Christ to him? Some of you may be thinking, well, it said he had some faith. I would ask you, where does faith come from? Do we whip it up ourselves? Of course not, right? It says that God is the one who gives us faith, right? What about others? What about Nicodemus? Why did Christ open his eyes? I mean, he was a blind religious Pharisee, right? What about the woman at the well? Was there a reason why Christ saved her? Was there something good about her? We know that she had five husbands, and the man she lived with wasn't her husband. Plus, she followed a false religion. She was a Samaritan, so she mixed some of the Jewish views with pagan religions. The point is Christ saves people from every walk of life and it has nothing to do with them, how good they are or what they have done or accomplished. It has nothing to do with them. Scripture tells us that none is righteous. No, not one. All are dead in sin. All are under the wrath of God. It has, it's not, it has nothing to do with how good these people are but how good Christ is to save such bad people like them. These people were undeserving of God's love. But God gave it to them anyway. What about us? What brought us? What brought Christ to us? Were we any different than the people above? Was there something good in us that caused Christ to save us? Of course, the answer is clearly No, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Scripture says we can't depend on ourselves. Our good works are like filthy rags, right? Why is our good deeds like filthy rags, anyway? Because the good we do is usually mixed with sinful motives, people-pleasing, Worried about what people think. A lot of different reasons. We're all tainted with sin from head to toe. God saves us in spite of who we are, amen? Which leads to point number four. Christ saves us by his grace. Point number four says that Christ saves us by his grace, period. Period. God looks to his son's righteousness that was imputed to us to save us. We receive the unmerited favor, his grace that cleanses us from all our sinfulness, all our unrighteousness. I would ask this this morning, who are we putting our faith in? Is it in ourselves and our own goodness or are we putting our faith in Christ and in Christ alone? There's only one who was good and his name was Jesus Christ. We can depend on his holiness, his love, his perfect life, his character to save us. He won't let us go. Well, in conclusion, how are we handling Christ this morning? Is Christ our focus when our life is turned upside down? 1 Peter 5-7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God cares for his children because he loves us. He will do what is best for all of us in whatever situation we face. He will not abandon us. The question is, will we trust him? Will we walk with him in his ways when others, when our feelings, when everything around us is telling us to disobey the word of God, will we stand on God's word and God's word alone because of our faith in Jesus Christ? Christ is in the middle of our crisis. He is working in our circumstances. We can have hope. We have purpose. We have joy in the darkest of hours because Christ is enough. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you that you are enough. That you sent your Son to die for us, Father. That you reckoned us those of us who have turned to you in faith and repentance to be your children. There's many of us who have had knowledge about you, but truly we've not submitted our life to you, Father. And I ask that people do that, that they will turn to Christ and submit all of them, all of them to you for your glory. The reality of it is, if, if it was just us alone, there were truly walking in the power of the Spirit, we would turn Marco Island upside down for your glory. May you use us. May you open our eyes. May you not allow us, Father, to be so distracted by this world, by maybe secret, sinful things going on in our lives. May we bring them out into the open because if we don't, you will, Father. So help us to be men and women of integrity who will walk, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you carry us through the trials and crises that we face. We love you and praise you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.